last week, we talked about Planck's black body radiation. We treated, as we do pretty much all particles, we put photons in a box, okay, and then we quantize the photons in a box. And we got this law out, which told you something about the intensity of photons at a particular frequency if the collection of photons is in thermal equilibrium. So we said, for example, we had a box that was held at a particular temperature. The box would radiate photons out, and the photon gas that was, that was in thermal equilibrium with the box would have this kind of form. So remember the shape of that curve. At low frequencies, it comes up from zero, okay? So low frequencies, it comes back to the mega cube. Then it peaks and then falls off again. And the peak, we said, that we could relate to the temperature of the photon gas. So this, for example, is how you tell the temperature of stars. Uh, this also led to the Stefan-Boltzmann law, which is that the total energy in the photon gas goes up as temperature to the fourth. And here we go. Peak frequency in the spectrum tells the temperature of stars. We also have good evidence that the Big Bang happened based on the background radiation of the universe that tells us that the background temperature out there of about 3 Kelvin of the photon gas that's left over from the beginning of the universe. We talked about radiant power per area that would come off of uh, a flat surface at a particular temperature. So you use this in your uh, homework about heat shields, for example. So you had an infinite sheet at a particular temperature and it radiated in both directions with uh, a radiant energy flux that went like temperature to the fourth. And we also then apply this stuff to phonons because phonons are very similar to, pho similar to photons. Phonons were the vibrational modes that happen in a crystal. So one atom wiggles and it sets its neighbor in motion and sets its neighbor in motion and so on. And we can treat those as traveling waves, which by analogy with the photons, then we knew what the form of the heat capacity was going to be in a solid. And at low temperature in the solid, the heat capacity went like TQ. At high temperature in the solid, the heat capacity approached the equipartition limit. Do you remember why the heat capacity is different at low temperature from high temperature? Does that make physical sense? If the heat capacity is about where energy gets stored? Yeah? Yeah, so as you turn the temperature up, you can access these higher energy modes. And at some point, in the very high temperature limit, you saturate, that is, you've excited all the modes that are available, and all the uh, energy is equally distributed. So <laughs> equally distributed is where we get equipartition being equally distributed. Any questions about that from last week? Okay, so today we'll start with a new conjugate pair. We've talked about breaking up our thermodynamic variables into conjugate pairs where one is intensive, one is extensive. So we'll get a new conjugate pair today, which will be the chemical potential with particle number. Up until now, we've always drawn a box around the system and said no particles can enter, no particles can exit. Today we'll change that. We will allow particles to exchange, and then we have to make up a new conjugate pair to particle number, and that's going to be the chemical potential. So we'll define that. We will look at the chemical potential in an ideal gas, and we'll have to make a distinction between total internal and external chemical potentials. That is, the total chemical potential will be internal plus external, and don't worry, we'll go through that. And then we'll take it through a few examples. So we'll look at pressure versus altitude in the atmosphere, spins in the magnetic field, and uh, how your car batteries work. So 
We usually look here at this. This is the thermodynamic identity. DU is tau d sigma minus PdV. And tau d sigma, those two together, temperature with entropy, that's a uh, conjugate pair. So temperature is conjugate to entropy, entropy is conjugate to temperature. You may control one but not the other. Pressure and volume are another conjugate pair. And you remember which of these variables scale the size of the system? Three of these variables scale the size of the system. Yeah, u sigma and v. Those are the things that if I take the system, copy it, and add it back to itself, everything is double. But the temperature would not double and the pressure would not double. Sometimes you get pairs always come in in, in pairs of one extensive and one intensive variable. The things that scale with the size of the system are extensive. The things that don't are intensive. So temperature and pressure are intensive. Entropy and volume are extensive. So you make the system larger, those go up. So here's your set of extensive variables and a set of intensive variables. Here's what's, what's interesting and can help you remember how to do Legendre transforms. The internal energy U is always a function of the extensive variable. Even, even if you go to bizarre new systems that have a new pair of, of conjugate variables, the internal energy will always end up being a function of the, whatever the external, sorry, the extensive variables are. So du being tau d sigma minus PdV, since sigma was the variable and volume was the variable, that means that the uh, internal energy is a function of entropy and volume. And so when we add the new pair, we'll, we'll use that principle to decide which, which of the new variables goes there. So the new, new conjugate pair, okay, we'd like to be able to vary particle number in the system. Because sometimes you have systems where they're not quite closed, but a particle can come in or go out, or you know maybe you have an osmosis layer, okay, and there's a, there's a barrier that can let some particles go across it or not. So we need to, to think now about what happens when you start changing particle number in the system. And the conjugate to that is the chemical potential. And the chemical potential will basically ask the question, if I add a new particle to the system, how much energy did that cost? That's the chemical potential. So it's the particle number that's extensive here because I count the number of particles in a system, I take the system, copy it, add it back to itself, I just doubled the number of particles. So particle number has to be the extensive thing. And internal energy always depends on the extensive variable. So internal energy is a function of entropy, volume, particle number. The, the Helmholtz free energy we defined as U minus tau sigma. We will keep that definition, same definition as before. It's still U minus tau sigma, which means that the proper variables of the free energy are in terms of temperature, volume, and particle number. Okay? Because if, if U was a function of particle number, and you do this Lagrange transform, that means you'll trade out sigma for tau, and that's it. Everything else stays the same. So the free energy is properly a function of temperature, volume, and particle number. Any questions about that? We're just sort of preparing to do some physics here, but questions so far? Okay. <coughs> so what we had before, before we added the chemical potential, was that the internal energy was, was a function of entropy and volume. DU is tau d sigma minus PdV was the thermodynamic identity, which 
If you memorize it, it will make your life easier. And I just want to remind you how you how you can define thermodynamic variables as differentials of the energy functions. So here, for example, du is tau d sigma minus PdB. If I held volume constant, then I can see that the temperature was defined as du by d sigma at constant volume. We're going to have to fix these equations up now that we've added n and mu, but I want to remind you how it went before we bothered with n and with the chemical potential. And pressure here, if I say that entropy is constant, then I can cross that term off. And then pressure becomes minus du by dv. I just divide both sides by dv. So pressure is minus du by dv. And then I put a little note here saying that I held sigma constant while I did that. Same thing with the free energy. Free energy is internal energy minus tau sigma, meaning it's a function of temperature and volume now. So df is minus sigma d tau minus pdv. And then sigma, you do the similar thing. Say it's a constant volume, cross that term off, divide by d tau. So sigma is minus df by d tau. And then we know that it's a constant volume. Same thing for the pressure. Okay. So I want to use these principles. We're going to add in chemical potential and particle number. Okay. <coughs> so add in chemical chemical potential, particle number. Okay. And remember how this how this went here. Okay. The new the new energy functional. Uh, you can define a, a variable in terms of a derivative with respect to its conjugate variable, okay? So here's sigma with minus df by d tau. So that's the derivative of the energy with respect to the conjugate variable. So how do you expect to define the chemical potential? If I think, for example, in terms of internal energy, okay, just internal energy, what kind of relation do you expect to go in the box here? Mu will be proportional to? Yeah, yeah. So du by dn, we'll think of here. And same thing over here. Oops. Oh, that's not fair. Okay, we're having animation problems. Technical difficulties, hang on. See now. When I did that on my computer, it animated itself away. So maybe we'll just go into this mode, okay? <laughs> so the thermodynamic identity for us now is du is tau d sigma minus PdB plus mu dn. We've added the new conjugate pair. <coughs> and so this is the mu dn, I hope makes sense if we define the chemical potential of how much energy do I add to the system if I add one more particle, okay? So now when I do a dn, where I change the particle number, add one more particle, I will add mu to the system. When I do it again, have another dn, I'll add another particle to the system. So this physically is that the change in internal energy is heat in minus work out plus particles in. Okay? So that's physically where all this stuff is coming in. So your, therm your thermodynamic identity just added a term, the plus mu dn. So memorize this one now. Du is tau d sigma minus PdB plus mu dn. And when we add particles, that means we'll be increasing the internal energy. So we'd like to define the chemical potential with this sign, okay? Such that if, it, if adding a particle adds energy, okay, then let's put that, that sign to be positive for the chemical potential. <coughs> 
Okay. Uh, okay. Here's our uh, equation now with a new conjugate pair. So we have the internal energy, function of sigma V and N. DU is tau D sigma minus PDV plus mu DN. Okay. So now we have enough information there to write down what the chemical potential will be. It's derivative, okay, with respect to the energy functional. And here for the free energy, we'll have a slightly different definition of the chemical potential. So, before I reveal the answer, um, write down what you think the answer should be. Okay, see if you can go from, because you should by now be able to go from this line, okay, to mu is some function of a derivative with respect to the internal energy. And be careful about which, which thing you hold constant. Go and down for both of these. letters in first grade. So those are my recommendations. This is your, your first grade example of how to draw characters in Greek. So I heard people talking about, oh, my sigma looks really funny. So there, that's, that's, that's how I draw sigmas in towns, that they come out right, right? Start arguing that way, that way doesn't end up looking like a stick. Do you, do you draw the tail? I, I do, I do one single stroke like that. The towel? Yeah, I do, I, I do this one. I also do that I found out that if I do it that way, it doesn't end up looking like other characters so much. But we're in first grade diversion today, yeah? I always have to write Sigma the little loop of the top. No, like how? Really? Okay. Let's see how your Sigma looks like a zero. Whoa! Here I am. It's like a zero. If you want work oh, yeah, do mu. <laughs> I should do mu. Mu is the hardest one. Mu? Mess it up with the second one. Mu. That's an That's mu. You need a longer front tail. Yeah. Alright, alright, alright. There you go. Alright, here's my favorite. Are you ready? Yeah. This is the letter C. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, wait. How is that? Oh, my God. There you go. That's, that's, wow. 
And now when I think of two systems in contact, so system one, system two, system one is a temperature tau, volume V, particle number N, okay? System two has tau two, V two, and N two. And I'll put a barrier between them that can trade particles and heat energy, okay? But I want the barrier to be stationary. I don't want it to move. I want to be trading volume. So trade particles uh, and heat energy. <coughs> and now what we want to do is minimize the total free energy, okay, which is equivalent to maximizing the entropy, subject to the constraint that the total number of particles is constant. You can trade particles back and forth across the barrier, but you're not allowed to reach in and pull out a particle. So <coughs> the free energy will be a minimum with respect to changes in N1 and N2. We already know what's going to happen to the temperature, right? The temperature will end up being the same on both sides. But what we want to see is and what else happens now when we're able to trade particles. So <coughs> what, what will happen is we'll come up with a condition of the chemical potential. So free energy is F1 plus F2. That is, that's the total free energy of both sides together, F1 plus F2, which is U1 plus U2 minus tau sigma 1 minus tau sigma 2. This is how we define the free energy. <coughs> and we'd like to minimize F. So you take one derivative to minimize something, one derivative and set that to zero to find the extremum. So df is df1 by dn1, call it constant temperature in v1, times dn1, okay, because that's the thing that I changed, plus df2 by dn2 at constant temperature in v2, and times dn2, all of that equals zero. You okay that I set temperature equal to temperature? Okay, I'm assuming that our prior conditions on thermal equilibrium still hold. And that's what these guys in contact at temperature will equilibrate. So this is T1, this is T2, but they're the same. <coughs> so we're minimizing the free energy, but we have a constraint. The constraint is that N1 plus N2 is constant. So if I take one derivative of this equation, that gives me Vn1 plus Vn2 equals derivative of a constant zero. Okay, so Vn1 plus Vn2 is zero. So Vn1 is minus Vn2. All that means is when I do a small shift of particles from side one, they went into side two. We set that up, right? We set up that particles can move across this barrier, but they're not going to leave the system. So Vn1 is minus Vn2. So now we take our equation from the previous slide about the free energy. And when I see dn2, I'm going to substitute in a minus dn1. Okay. So the free energy differential is df1 by dn1 minus df2 by dn2, all times dn1. Okay. All I did is introduce that minus sign. <coughs> but these were chemical potentials, right? You, you derived that a few minutes ago. That chemical potential is defined as df by dn at constant temperature and volume. So this is chemical potential on side one. This is chemical potential on side two. So mu one minus mu two times dn one, all of that has to equal zero. So what that means is that mu one will have to equal mu two. You have a question? Yes, um, just just a math question actually. The partial derivative of f with respect to n one and n two, right? And we know that n one and n two over there would be dn one minus dn one equal to negative dn two. Would that partial be exactly the same as saying that the difference in D and 1? I mean, can we express F1 or F2 in terms of just N1? 
Yes, you could, since you have that equation. Okay. Yeah, you could. And then you could also go back and <coughs> if you, I think where you're headed is that you want to take this part, for example, yeah. and you could change variables right. to n1. Right. And you could absolutely do that. Okay. And you could say df2 by dn1. Okay. Yeah, that would be legal. So I've left it in this form so that we can easily spot the chemical potential. Because if you said df1 by dn, sorry, you said df2 by dn1, then that's not obviously uh, a chemical potential. But here, express this way it is. And yeah, you're right, you can write it the other way too. Any other questions? Okay, so mu1 minus mu2. So this high technology when you try to mix Macintosh with PP. On my computer, they disappear. <laughs> so here's our new condition on thermal equilibrium. Mu1 equals mu2, so it goes in the box in your notes. <coughs> is that T1 equals T2, okay, that's what you're used to for thermal equilibrium, the temperatures equilibrate. When they're in um, contact, but they're allowed to pass particles back and forth across the barrier, then that they'll do that, they'll pass particles back and forth, maybe particles will run to one side until the chemical potentials become equal. When the chemical potentials become equal, there's no reason to trade particles anymore. This is actually, this chemical potential equilibrating is actually a way to think about if I took uh, a glass of water and poured it into a bowl. As I did that, I'm letting the chemical potential of the water molecules get lower by going into something that's at a lower gravitational potential. <coughs> so temperatures equilibrate, that's thermal equilibrium. Chemical potentials equilibrate, that's diffusive equilibrium, meaning that the particles will stop transferring. <coughs> What about, what do you think would be a condition if we had let volume change as well? Let's say that I took that barrier that can trade particles, but I also let it fly. Pressure? Yeah, pressure would be the thing that, it, that would equilibrate that. Okay. So if you want to, you can add a third line here, which is that P1 equals P2 in mechanical equilibrium, if they're in mechanical contact. <coughs> And notice then that it would be the whole set of n tens and variables. You would make sure that temperature, chemical potential, and pressure all get equilibrated. Any questions about that? Yeah. So if it's in diffusive equilibrium, it's also in thermal equilibrium at the same time? Does one imply the other? Because um, then we assume that to solve that u1 equals u2. I can't think of a way to make it not the case. But I think, I think theoretically you could probably set up a problem where you define that you had a barrier that allowed particles to trade, but not heat energy to trade. I don't know how you do that physically. I can't think of any way that you could actually do that. But when we derived you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the diffusive equilibrium condition that we hold temperature constant to derive that, on both sides, that's T1 equals T2. So, okay, we kind of dropped temperature out of the out of the equation because we knew it was going to equilibrate. But if we did that, we could do them all at once. So, what would we do if we did them all at once? If we did them all at once, then we would say, let's see, you would come up with 
Okay, so right here where we have this mu1 minus mu2 is constant. Let's see, if I raise this up a little bit. Can you kind of see if I write back here? Okay, so you have this equation here, uh, df1 by dn1 minus df2 by dn2 all times dn1 equals zero. We use a similar equation for the thermal equilibrium conditions. And so you would have, if you wanted to, add in the fact that this could change otherwise, right? You would have to have some sort of df1 by dn1, no, not by dn. Free energy is a function of how v and df by d tau, holding everything else constant. Okay. Well, we have to figure this out. D sigma to D sigma one. Okay. That's the route you would take. Okay. Okay. All right. Now we've got a problem in that here we would have to be a little bit more careful because the free energy depends on temperature is a variable. So maybe, you know, maybe to find your temperature equation, you'd want to go back to the internal energy and look at the internal energy. And remember, the way that we got this temperature thing was that we said that the internal energy was a function of sigma and volume. And then we looked at maximizing entropy because we wanted to maximize the number of available states. So du how was du by d sigma, constant volume. And we saw that this thing was the thing that ended up equilibrating on both sides and you maximize that. So that's not going to, it's not going to change in our physical setup. Okay. So maybe an easy way to get both of them at the same time is to write all this down in terms of internal energy. Then you could have this obvious internal energy relation between internal energy, entropy, and temperature. And you have a similar relation between internal energy and chemical potential. Okay. So that's how I do it. Okay? Start with internal energy. That's a good question. Any other questions? <coughs> okay. All right. So new conditions on equilibrium. Okay, yeah, I see your confusion. Here I use the word thermal equilibrium, and then on the next page I call it diffusion equilibrium. So let's call the Uber concept equilibrium. Okay, so in equilibrium, all those things are true. Are true. Thermal equilibrium, diffusive equilibrium. If you add pressure, you call that mechanical equilibrium. Chemical potential, we've been defining as Df by dn at constant temperature and volume. And another way to look at that, see, we were a bit sneaky with that, okay? Because we defined it completely analogously to how we've defined everything else, but everything else is continuous variables, whereas n is a discrete variable. So you can, in the limit of large system science, do that trick. Okay, if you have 
a million particles, or better yet, an Avogadro's number of particles, 10 to the 23 particles, and the difference between that and 10 to the 23 plus one more particle is so small that you can actually treat that as a derivative. But if you have smaller numbers of particles, you'd have to go back to a more basic definition, which is that the chemical potential, chemical potential is really a discrete, uh, a discrete difference between the free energy in the two cases. You take the free energy with a certain number of particles minus the free energy with one less particle, and that'll give you the chemical potential. So, but you see how you would make this become a derivative, right? You can uh, divide, for example, by delta n, okay, on both sides, and then take the limit, and that would give you uh, the free energy. In terms of, sorry, that would give you a derivative of the free energy in the limit that, that n went very large, and that delta n went small compared to total n. So anyway, this is just truth, truth in advertising, so you know that I, I did sneak something by, all right? But in the limit of, of large particles, you can please you know, any, any questions about that? So the, the physical thing to think about is what is, it, what is it that this potential drives? So the temperature, if you have a temperature difference in a system, that's going to like a gradient, a temperature gradient that drives the transfer of heat from one side of the system to the other. If you have a chemical potential difference, that's going to drive the transfer of particles, not just heat by itself, but particles. So it's another way to think of these things. Any, any questions about chemical potential in general? We're going to apply it now. You okay? Right. Have you seen chemical potential in chemistry classes at all? Gone a little bit? Sort of. Okay. All right. So what we're going to do now is derive the chemical potential for the ideal gas case. In the ideal gas case, I put this last from the from the past here, meaning that this is just a slide I took from a previous lecture. So in the lecture where we define the ideal gas, this is what we did. So we put one atom in a box first, okay? And we derived the partition function from one atom in a box. And in the ideal gas, all we cared about was the kinetic energy of the particles. We didn't let the particles interact. And we didn't let an external magnetic field be on or any of that stuff. So here we start with this, the sum over all states of e to the minus. This big term here is p squared over 2m divided by temperature because your partition function, remember, is sum over e to the minus energy over tau. Okay, so we have a lot of stuff up. This is just, just uh, kinetic energy. And that ended up being proportional to NQ times the volume. Do you remember what this guy was? I mean, not the form, though, but what it represents. Yeah, so NQ is the quantum concentration. And that represented how small did I have to make the box before I started noticing that this was really a wave function and not a distinct particle. So we'll stay in the limit zone where we're far from the quantum concentration. And then we stuff many atoms in the same box, stuff identical particles all in the same box, not too tightly, let it still be dilute, so that all we have to worry about is uh, kinetic energy. And then the partition function we had to be a little bit careful with. That ended up being V1 to the N, okay, which was just a single particle partition function, N times, divided by N factorial, because 
if it's a really ideal gas and all the particles are the same and I switch two particles, you can't tell. Okay, so I had to divide all of those possibilities out of the partition function. And then the free energy is minus tau log Z. So the free energy of the ideal gas is minus tau log of Z1 to the N over N factorial. You okay with that? Okay. So now we're going to use that to derive the chemical potential for the ideal gas. We have a free energy in terms of ends. We have ends in various places. Okay. And you, you already derived today that you can define the chemical <coughs> potential in terms of dF by dN. So see where we're going. Okay. Just going to take, take it a little bit and see what it has. Okay. So free energy minus tau log is V1 to the N over N factorial. I'll just break this up a little bit. That becomes minus tau times N log of V1 minus log of N factorial. Okay. Just got them out in separate terms that are a little easier to deal with. Now I have a choice. I can either take derivatives, okay, mu is dF by dN, or I can use the difference equation, okay. Either way will get you the same answer, but let's use the difference equation. So f of tau v and n minus f of tau v with one less particle. That will give me the chemical potential. So up here, I have to basically write this down for n particles and then subtract off uh, what happens with n minus 1 particle. So here, n log of v1 comes straight down minus the case with one less particle, so minus n minus 1 log of v1, and the rest of the free energy is the minus tau up here. So this is the minus log of the factorial minus the case with one less particle. Okay. And so all together, I get a minus t log of v, right, which is an n minus an n minus n1, so one left over. This stuff, minus log of n factorial over n minus 1 factorial, okay, and n factorial divided by n minus 1 factorial is just n. So all together, okay, we get a minus, n, sorry, we get a minus tau log of z1 minus log n. I can put z1 over n in the log, but then I can flip it over because of the minus sign. Okay, so this is tau log of n over z1. Or if I plug back in the, the definition of Z1, I'll get a tau log N over NQV. Yeah, question. Um, you said N minus 1. You're just taking the smallest like, change, but would it be wrong for me to take N minus 4? Good question. So would that change my answer in the end? It would change this answer. It yeah, it would change this answer. Uh, let's see. So we would get... So we would get an n minus, let's take n minus 4, for example. So we'd get an n minus 4 here. Um, so that wouldn't quite match up. We'd get a 3 there in the row 3. And then we'd have an n factorial over n minus 4 factorial, right? So then we'd have, we'd have extra terms left over there as well. So yeah, it does matter. Uh, so, so what we want to do is define the chemical potential as adding one particle. We define it like that. One particle. Yeah. Yeah. So the basic... That's, that's what your chemical potential is. I add one more particle of the system and how much energy did I add? So I defined it. There, there is another way to define it, though. Okay, sorry. Same definition but different mathematical formula, which is that we took here mu as f of n minus f of one less particle. If you wanted to shift that by one register and say that's f of n plus one minus f of n, that would be yeah. What if your system could only change four particles at a time? Though? Is that wow. 
uh, copper in contact with iron. There's no particular reason that their internal electronic chemical potentials are the same because they're different substances. Okay, and in fact, that's usually not the case. Usually, has anybody heard of a Fermi energy? The Fermi energy is basically the highest electronic state in, in one of these metals. They're different in different materials. So when you put two metals together, they'll have different uh, chemical potentials, basically, because um, it'll cost energy to move an electron from one into the other. But you could apply a voltage and give it that difference. So if I have electrons sitting over here and electrons sitting over here, they're different chemical potentials, then I could hook up a, a battery okay, of the right voltage to change that. This is a quick treating particle. Or I could think of it, you know, think of this a different way. Let me have a collection of electrons and a collection of electrons that are at the same chemical potential. Okay, if I now put a voltage difference across them, they'll flow. You're used to that, right? You're used to take a resistor, apply a voltage difference, electrons flow. So, since chemical potentials also drive particle flow, this, this voltage difference times, times the charge belongs in the chemical potential. Okay, it's part of the chemical potential that we're talking about. So, I can take here, for example, I've got two different substances. They were at different chemical potentials, but there's some voltage that I can tune it to, to where particles will stop flowing. And then I would have equilibrated the total chemical potential. So, I just said the word total because what I'm trying to introduce here is the concept of a total chemical potential. There's an internal chemical potential, which we calculated for the ideal gas, right? That formula we calculated for <coughs> the internal chemical potential. It has to do just with the particles relative to other particles and not relative to the outside world. So what I'm drawing here really is an internal chemical potential if this guy knew nothing of the outside world. And here is another internal chemical potential if this guy knew nothing of the outside world. And then I can tune their relative chemical potentials with a voltage, but that's an external thing, right? I have to take leads and hook it up to one side and to the other side, and that's an external potential. So there's a difference then between uh, internal chemical potentials and external chemical potentials. And when we do thermodynamics, we'll have to take into account the total. Here, for example, this is fun because this will get to the degraded Kool-Aid problem again. Okay? So if I took two systems that had different chemical potentials, now they don't have to have charge. Now they can be ideal gas particles. Okay? So ideal gas particles. And if I just raise one box relative to the other. Okay, there's gravitational potential energy. So when I lift this box up, I've added energy to it. Every single particle got raised by that amount of energy. And the proper place to put that in our equations is a chemical potential difference. So if I did this, let's say I have a box of particles here and a box of particles here. Raise one relative to the other. And now if I open up a channel here, they would flow down. Right? Why do you call chemical potential? I'm sorry? It's physical potential. Yeah, why do you guys call them chemical potential? Oh, I didn't get to make up the names. The names were made up before I was born. I would name a lot of things differently. So. The computer. Have you heard it called a physical potential somewhere else? Yes, I assume. The name should be physical. Yeah, hey, hey. <laughs> 
I'm inclined to agree with you. What I really hate is when you get into really advanced physics, they'll start naming things after people, after the person who discovered it. Okay, well, anyway. <laughs> Biology and chemistry have much more rational naming systems. Sure, they're in Latin, but at least it's rational and predictable, and I agree with you. This is not named well. You may name the See, right, exactly, exactly. Now that there's this trend in, in physics to name stuff after yourself, and obviously I want people to be talking about the Carlson theory. So, no. you got to do it because everybody else did it. The way, just so you know, the way to get a theory named after yourself is you publish it and you call it something horrible. Call it, you know, just make a really long, bad name that no one can remember, and then they're forced to name it after you. Little known secrets. You get into grad school and you become a theorist. Why well, is it egotistical to name it after yourself right after that? Oh, I don't know. Okay. I think it's probably. <laughs> 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 the thing is, it needs to catch on. I can name it whatever I want. I can name it Q, but if it doesn't catch on, it doesn't catch on, right? Because language is collective. <laughs> what if I what?
their system. Yeah? Doesn't pressure drive particle flow also? Pressure, I mean, if you have if you have a vacuum versus a tight, tightly packed system and you take out the wall between them, the particles are all going to we'll also rush over there as well. If I do the vacuum case. Um, actually, what I would, I would, I would recast your problem and I would say the following. I would say that pressure differentials drive volume changes. So if I had, for example, all the gas pent up on one side, I could say that that's its volume. And then when I remove the barrier and it's at this expansion into the vacuum, I would say that it occupied more volume. I'm trying to, I, there, there may be a case where you could get this to break down, but I think, you're, I think if it's a pressure differential, you're going to be able to interpret it in terms of volume flow. Maybe you might have to go to the partial pressure description if you want to be more complicated. Other questions? I saw hands. You figured it out? I'm just wondering, could that be, as she said, could that be depending on the macro or microscopic system? I mean, if we're talking about large particles, whereas water, right? Yeah. Then I guess the problem would be much easier to work out in terms of pressure as compared to not a very large number of particles. Mm -hmm. Where we're talking about discrete particles as n minus one and so on. Okay. All right. So I think part of what you're saying is that there's also pressure differentials in here. Right. Okay. We're actually going to derive that in in a few slides. We'll derive the pressure differential, and it's going to come out of chemical potential differential. So I'm glad you're thinking along those lines because we will we will connect those in a few slides. Okay. And then and then maybe maybe we could come up with a unified description just chemical potentials or pressures. So, right, deuterated truly, we had talked about that before, right? Where the, uh, you have particles of different masses. If you wanted to find then the equilibrium distribution, if I had heavy Kool-Aid and regular Kool-Aid, right, or heavy Kool-Aid, if I take H2O and for every H I put in the deuterium, so it's simply a heavier molecule, you, you sort of think intuitively that the heavy molecules should somehow be on the lower side and the lighter molecules up up higher. So the way you take that into account is to do the problem taking into account the chemical potential for every particle at a particular height given that it's in a gravitational field. And so actually we'll make that work with it in a few slides. So total chemical potential is internal plus external chemical potential. Okay, so this is just a division we make between what are the types of chemical potentials that have nothing to do with the outside world? They only have to do with the particles relative to each other. So no matter where I put this box or what external fields I put on it, external fields could be uh, electric fields, a voltage can be described in terms of an electric field, a magnetic field, a gravitational field, uh, all that stuff would be in the external category. So whatever's left over and independent of external things you call internal. Okay? It's just just a division for us to keep straight what's, what's going on between the particles and what's something that I can tune in the lab. Things you can tune in the lab are going to be external things. So external chemical potential due to external conditions, voltage, height, magnetic field, and internal is everything that's left over. The total chemical potential, though, is the thing that you need to take into account for thermodynamics to work. You need the total, right? Because when I, the total chemical potential is, deter is defined by how much energy does it take to add one more particle to the system? So you have to overcome all the energies that are there. And here's kind of fun thing.
turns that voltmeters measure the total chemical potential. So voltmeters are looking at the total voltage difference. If there's an external voltage applied, plus if you happen to have an internal voltage, you would pick that up too. Does anybody know of a, of a, of a situation where you get an internal voltage in the material? Call effect? Other places? You, you guys remember the Hall effect, right? You send current through and you put a magnetic field up and you get electrons deflecting and they all gather on one side, which gives you a, an internal voltage. Maybe, if, I mean, I'm just, uh, if you apply a voltage on a spin system and then you would make the, it's a Make what? If you apply the voltage on a pedal or something. Okay. You could make the top layer of the atoms move. You want to throw spin in? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think you're talking about spintronics. Spintronics is not my field, um, and it's definitely an unsettled, unsettled problem as to how the spin couples into all these things. Hall effects. That's that's. I don't know about the ferromagnetic thing. I have to think about it. Question was, <laughs> do you know of examples in life? where you can get an internal uh, voltage, right? Because this voltage, voltmeters would measure the total chemical potential. Batteries. We know, yeah, there you go, batteries, okay. Cool. Other places? What? <laughs> I heard capacitors. Yes, that's a good spot. What did you say? Oh, cool. Wow. Okay. Cells in your body and, and like neurons, for example, depend very much on these internal uh, voltage differences rather than external. Yeah. <laughs> I think you could probably consider lightning that way. It's, that it's, a, it's a potential difference that we did not create in the lab. Wow. This is cool. Would, would resistors fit into that category then? I think with a resistor, you would want to say that it's an external voltage. Can you? Okay. The battery sort of has an internal voltage, and we apply a battery to a resistor to create an external voltage on the resistor. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is such a cool. I didn't. I hadn't thought about all these things myself. Yeah. Why would the capacitor be an internal voltage? Because I can control. Okay. All right. Maybe maybe you think of that as an external voltage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Once it's charged up, then it would be an internal. I don't know. <laughs> you set up the capacitor by applying an external voltage, right? Sure. All right. You set it up, then you could take the leads off and let go, and then maybe maybe you could have a debate about whether it now became an internal or external voltage. So the the big okay. So you guys all brought up great examples, which are all correct. And uh, so there's one more example which is really, really prevalent in society and revolutionized the world, which you should know about, which is the PN junction. This is where two semiconductors have different dopings, and when they meet, they actually produce an internal voltage to them. And that's part of why transistors work. So anyway, you should also be aware of that example. Physics revolutionized the world with semiconductors and the PN junction. And it's due to an, due to an internal voltage. That would be great list, though. So, pressure. 
Pressure and altitude. Okay, let's let two, I'm going to go ahead and, there we go. We let two systems be a thermal and diffusive contact, meaning they can trade heat energy and they can trade particles. Thermal contact means trade heat energy. Diffusive contact means trade particles back and forth. And they're separated by a height age. Okay, so I have a gas of particles up here, a gas of particles up there. There's a very small conduit between them, connecting them, so that they're, they're in contact at a different height. So, let me assume that the temperature is uniform throughout the system. So that's a big heat bath somewhere that will keep the top and the bottom at the same temperature. <coughs> but we, we know that particles down here have a different chemical potential relative to particles up here, right? Somebody had brought up the the point is chemical potentials are really relative, okay? So relative to each other, they have a different chemical potential. And the difference is in GH, okay? So there's a, uh, M is the mass per particle times gravitational constant times the height difference. <coughs> so the total chemical potential throughout the entire gas, I can actually use one equation. If it's ideal gas, we use mu is tau log of N over NQ, just like we derived before plus now MGH, and that'll give me a chemical potential that's valid at every point inside of this, this dumbbell-shaped thing. But we know, okay, so we've set a constraint that thermal equilibrium is enforced by heat bath. So now we need to enforce diffusive equilibrium. If we enforce diffusive equilibrium, that means the chemical potential will somehow equilibrate itself out. Okay? That's kind of odd. I just said that I can use one chemical potential equation throughout the entire thing, okay, and that has to be valid. But in diffusive equilibrium, whatever's up here at height age has to have the same chemical potential as whatever's down here. Because if there were a chemical potential difference, particles would fly one way or the other. So what do you, I mean, the, you know, what do you expect intuitively to happen in this long object? Particles move down, okay, because things that are gravitational potential tend to fall, so you'll get a higher density down at the bottom. And and this is how you work it out, okay? So you you explicitly put height into the chemical potential, and now now what's going to happen is that you'll see that your density then has to be a function of height as well in order to accommodate that. And that's exactly what you expect. You expect a higher density of the gas at the bottom than at the top. And, you know, you won't notice this if you have a, a cylinder that's only a foot long, but if you had a cylinder that went up a mile, for example, you would have a lot higher density at the bottom than at the top. Does anybody go hiking on mountains? Okay, all right. Anybody go, like, really high altitude hiking? How high is really high? So high that you get headaches if you're not careful? I get headaches when I go, go hiking on really high mountains. Yeah, okay, so there you go, skiing, for example, like if you go to Denver, right, it's a really high altitude, there's uh, lower density of air there, and so it takes, takes wimps like me at least a day to adjust to Denver, because it's such a high altitude. Um, I made the mistake once of going hiking in Aspen. Here's a little known fact, if you go into physics as a profession, they like to have little conference centers in really nice places, because you have, you know, science is a, is a collaborative international thing, so you have to get together with people and have either arguments or cordial discussions depending on the person, right? But basically, you, you need to talk about stuff. So Aspen, for example, is a center for physics. And I went hiking with people from Switzerland. <laughs> 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 okay. 
thought I had adjusted to that, right? I thought I had adjusted to the, to the altitude, but not on the mountains. Just so you know, the last like 20 minutes of the hike. But it turns out when you get that high, because of this right here, because the density is going exponentially, you start to be able to feel that. And so if, if you're hiking at a really high altitude and you get lightheaded or a headache or whatever, just going down a few feet, backtracking a little bit, gets, you know, it's, it's an exponential function. So you'll, you'll rapidly be okay if you just go down a little bit. So I was, uh, I was an idiot and I went all the way to the peak because what, what happened was I was supposed to be able to turn aside. This is how they snickered me in, right? Swiss people with long legs saying, hey, come hiking with us, it'll be fun. I said, okay, but I don't normally hike. And he said, no problem. There's a fork in the road, and we'll go to the top of the mountain, and you can take this fork to the easy path, right? And I got snuffered in. So we're hiking along, and I'm trying not to complain because everything hurts and I have a headache. And I finally say, where's the fork in the road? I hope we're there soon. And he said, oh, we passed that an hour ago. <laughs> so it was only 20 minutes to the top, so I went to the top. But, um, be more careful and ask them from now on. But this is this is what got me was this density. Okay, density decays exponentially with height. So how does it come in? The chemical potential has to be the same throughout the thing. Okay, and when we put that constraint on, we'll get this exponential. So here's our equation for mu. Mu is a function of height. So at first, let's put in h. So that's tau log of n. We know is going to be a function of h. That's how we have to make this match up. So n is a function of h. The density is a function of height. Uh, over in Q plus MGH. On the right hand side, it has the chemical potential at the bottom. The chemical potential at the bottom is tau log of density at the bottom over NQ. And MGH, we said H equal to zero. Okay? So now if I solve this equation, let me, for example, take MGH to the right hand side, pull this tau log of N is zero over to the left hand side. Okay? And when I subtract log of n is 0 from both sides, then this can go in the denominator. What happened to the logs of nq? Yeah, they're gone, okay? So there's a minus log of nq on both sides, so we cancel that out. So we have all together tau is log of n of h divided by n of 0 is minus mgh, and divide by tau, okay, so here's divided by tau, and then exponentiate both sides. And then you'll see that the density is the zero level density times an exponential with height. So density will decay exponentially with height. Are there any questions about how we got that? Okay. Right. And okay, so we did density. We said it was an ideal gas and we made the assumption that the temperature is the same everywhere. Uh, the volume is just the volume of the entire system. Okay, so that's can't see that that's a function of height, it's the whole volume. And this density was a function of height. So the only thing left in the ideal gas law to also be a function of height to make the equation work, since the right hand side is a function of height, over here it has to be pressure. Okay? So that means that my pressure has to have the exact same exponential form. Uh, P of zero will just be, you know, plug into this equation at height zero and get the answer out. Okay, so then pressure also has to be an exponential function of height. And what I've done here, for example, I manipulated this a little bit. There's H as a height, and I gathered everything else into HC, okay, just sort of the, the critical height where you've gone down by one, one E. I just lumped all the constants together, okay? And what I, what I want to do that for is that then you have some sort of characteristic length scale that tells you 
roughly how high you have to hike before you start to notice this. So this H sub C, okay, has to do with, uh, you know, what's the characteristic height I have to hike, hike up before it's gone down by a factor of E. Okay. And here's the assumptions, okay. We assumed that the temperature was uniform. Uh, works pretty well, five kilometers to 50 kilometers up in the atmosphere, okay. Uh, and actually there's data in your book. Look up the data in chapter five. There's a nice little plot of uh, these density and pressure measurements. And at lower altitudes, you get temperature variations, and usually you get actually warmer pockets of air on the bottom. So this will break down a little bit in the regions that we're used to. But take a hot air balloon, for example, and go up and measure the density, and, and you'll see that, that this is more or less satisfied. So pressure, okay, both pressure and density in the ideal gas will decay exponentially as you go up with height. Okay? You okay with that? Actually, uh, Feynman, the Feynman lectures have a really good exposition of this as well. If you want to look that up in, in the Feynman lectures. A nice, nice example of that. I was playing, uh, sorry, I was playing Jeopardy once with some kids at church. I was a volunteer youth leader in my church in, in Los Angeles, and we would have these games, you know, to keep them entertained, right? Like boys versus girls, and I was, you know, on the girls' team, I was one of the youth leaders, and they would just ask us random questions. Yeah, they answered really fast, right? And so this question came up. <laughs> Why is it colder on a mountain? Right? And it fell to me. And I had just worked out, I was in graduate school, and I had just worked out the fact that all thermodynamic variables became exponentially with height in a gravitational field. So I knew that. <laughs> That's why it's going on. Because I, I was studying with welfare. Okay, so you got to imagine this, this poor audience of junior high kids, right? The question comes to me, why is it cold on a mountain? And all I could come up with was, because all thermodynamic variables decay exponentially with height in a gravitational field. <laughs> 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 and the, the answer on the card, of course, was, because they're tall. They <laughs> 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 so decided to accept that. That was it. <laughs> that was the point for the girl's side. Was, they're tall. <laughs> so, density decays exponentially with height, pressure decays exponentially with height. And, okay, so this actually will tell you more about <coughs> the atmosphere if you go to the partial pressure description. Have you heard of partial pressures from chemistry? Heard of that? Okay, so you have maybe a mixture of two different kinds of gases, two different ideal gases, or in the atmosphere you have several. Okay, you're going to have oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide, all those things. They're all different masses. So the ones with the heavier masses are concentrated towards the bottom, okay? And the ones with the lighter masses uh, go, you know, have a much, much longer uh, characteristic height. Basically, you can calculate that here. You take m, the mass of whatever particle you're interested in, and the characteristic height depends on that mass. So heavy particles have a big m, and uh, they'll have a small characteristic height. So they'll decay exponentially pretty rapidly as you go up. And lighter particles will have a very light mass, they'll have a longer uh, decay scale. So, for example, hydrogen and helium, we don't really get too much of, okay, because they extend so far up. They're, they're far enough out there that actually the solar wind tends to strip them off the Earth. But oxygen and nitrogen were heavy enough to be stuck in our gravitational potential, which is good because we like to breathe oxygen, right? Carbon dioxide gets stuck down here too, which is good because plants breathe that. So, radon really gets trapped, which is why you need a radon detector in your house, right? 
So when you buy a house, check for radon. It's a radioactive gas. And it's heavy, so it'll stay in your house rather than evaporate off. So there we go. Nitrogen, for example, has a characteristic height fallout of about five miles. So if you go five miles up in the atmosphere, the nitrogen density and the nitrogen pressure has gone down by a factor of E. I got that just by plugging this in, right? The characteristic height is temperature over mass times G. So if I take a temperature of, you know, say it's room temperature is 290 Kelvin, and take a mass of 48 times 10 to the minus 24 grams, and I say that the gravitational constant is 980 centimeters per second squared, plug all that in, beat on the units for a little bit, and you'll get five miles. Okay. Any questions about that? Okay. We can also look at chemical potentials in terms of magnetic particles. Okay. Because again, we're trying to make a distinction between internal chemical potentials and external chemical potentials. And external chemical potentials are things that cause an energy difference based on some knob we can tune in, uh, in a lab. So we can tune magnetic fields. So let's say that we have a collection of particles with spins. Some of them have up spins, some of them have down spins, which is a model we've been using again and again in class. And when I turn on the magnetic field, there's the Zeeman splitting. So whereas in zero field, all the particles had uh, energies that were similar, now when I turn on the magnetic field, the up spins have lower energy in the magnetic field, and the down spins now have higher energy in the magnetic field. So in fact, you'll, you'll tend to start uh, aligning things because you'll, you'll tend to want to populate this lower branch more. So we can treat this as an external chemical potential. The reason being, again, it was a knob I could tune in a laboratory. Okay, it turns out you can't quite tune gravity in a laboratory, but if you, know, if you could get a spaceship that could take you out to another planet, then you could start tuning it. Or to the moon, the moon's good enough. So the internal chemical potential is just the ideal gas laws. This is what we um, derived at the beginning of class. So internal chemical potential of the upspins is tau log times the density of the upspins over NQ. Same thing for the downspins. But now for the total, total chemical potentials, we always have the internal plus the external. And the external is this M times B, where M is the magnetic moment of a single spin. Okay. So this is just internal plus external. There's a little box in your notes to fill that in. Mu total of the downspins is tau log of N down over NQ plus MB. <coughs> they get higher in energy. And mu total up is tau log of N up over NQ minus MB. Those guys are going to get lower in energy. Okay. Sorry, you get it? Are we done? Okay, all right. It'll also be a little wet. So, here we are, particles in the magnetic field. We do need the two species to be in equilibrium, though. Okay? So, we want two species to be in equilibrium. And uh, the same thing will happen, okay? That if I have a gas of these particles and I allow the spins to exchange so that I can get the right thermal distribution here. So, a collection of up particles, a collection of down particles. As I turn up the magnetic field, if I let them uh, have a mechanism where they can equilibrate the population, Okay. That means that the number of up particles will depend on the magnetic field strength. The number of down particles will also depend on the magnetic field strength. So 
Here, for example, uh, the down particles are going up in energy if you turn on the magnetic field. So the answer here is that you'll get fewer down particles once you're in thermal equilibrium. Okay, and the up particles uh, have the minus mb, so they're going down in energy. So in thermal equilibrium, there should be more of those guys, more of the up particles. So let's just see how that comes out. What I want to say is that the total chemical potential for the down guys is equal to the total chemical potential for the up guys is some sort of constant okay, as I do this process. And then I'll turn on the field. So here, for example, is the chemical potential for the down ones. Catalog of n down over nq plus nb is some constant. Now, rearrange things a little bit. Okay, this constant c, uh, I'm not going to worry about exactly what it is for a second. Uh, subtract nb from both sides, so I have a c minus nb. Divide tau from both sides, and then we'll divide it by tau. Exponentiate both sides, and I get that n down is nq e to the, whatever that constant is, minus nb over tau. Okay, and at zero field, okay, so now at zero field, n down of zero field is the same thing, but with b set to zero. So I had a c minus nb with b is zero, so it's just a c, e to the c over tau. And see, here's a trick, okay, for doing theoretical physics, which is that now I just define that as n down of zero. Okay, I didn't have to come up with what that constant was. I don't know the constant, I don't know how to calculate it. It's a relative thing anyway, I could add an arbitrary constant to everything and nothing would matter. So notice I just put it in there to find it as a new variable. Okay? Because it doesn't affect the physics. So here's what I get to the down guys. Had I done the same set of equations for the up guys, I would get the same answer. Because at zero field, the two populations will be in thermal equilibrium and equally populated. Right? If there's no field, I'll have the same number of ups as downs. Okay. So n down at zero is n up at zero. And I did not write that equation down, but if they're equal, right, if there's an equal number of ups and downs, that means that half of them are up, half are down. So here I have a half, right? Half of the total number of particles are up, half are down. So now I can say then that n up is a function of magnetic field here, just plugging back into here. Actually, let's do the, do the downs, right? Down. Move the downs first. So n down as a function of magnetic field is right here, okay, but it's one half n of zero because that's all the constants here. One half n of zero with nq e to the c over tau. So just plug that in. And then the exponent that's left over is e to the minus nv over tau. Okay. Do you see why it came up with the same functional form as the height? It's kind of similar, right? We've got an exponential decay with magnetic field. We also get an exponential decay with height. Okay? Because the chemical potential of the ideal gas is related to the log of the density. So since there's a log in there, when you take the density out, it has to depend exponentially on whatever's left. Question? What if we didn't start with half up and half down of zero to Okay. Does it have to be like that? Oh, okay. So I was just assuming that at thermal equilibrium and zero field, but there was no particular preference for up or down. Yeah, that was just uh, an assumption. But it's pretty reasonable. You know, if I have no particular preference for up or down, then they will certainly populate. Now, you know, because we, we calculated this before, that there's some, that's true up to some distribution, right? That the most probable configuration is equal up and equal down. 
but you know that um, there's fluctuations to that thermally as well. So we're really calculating the average right here. Yeah. But you could go back from your distribution of how the fluctuations go. You could actually calculate here as well. You just have to carry it through. And you can also get that, that in, in thermal equilibrium, there'll be a little bit of fluctuation too. Good question. Any, any other thoughts before we head on? Okay. All right. The magnetic particles in the magnetic field. And uh, here, for example, okay, let's, let's look at um, N down and N up again, where N total is N up plus N down is one half N is zero, E to the MV over tau plus E to the minus NV over tau. I just added them, right? We just we derived N up and we derived N down and just added them, okay? So I'm going to add uh, an E to the X plus an E to the minus X through the cosh. But if I have a small magnetic field, I can Taylor expand this, okay? So in a very small magnetic field, let me go ahead and do a Taylor expansion. So E to the MV over tau uh, and E to the minus MV over tau will look similar. E to the X is 1 plus X plus a half X squared. E to the minus X is 1 minus X plus a half minus X squared, which is X squared. But if I'm adding those two exponentials, then MB over tau will cancel the other MB over tau. Altogether, I'll get that the, the sum of these in very small magnetic fields will be 2 plus MB over tau squared, okay, plus other corrections. So in fact, the total uh, number, the total density, okay, as I turn up the magnetic field, can actually increase that's kind of odd. So if the, re the way that this would happen is if I had uh, a particle reservoir sitting somewhere. Okay, so if I have this collection of up and down spins in thermal equilibrium, okay, and then now if I have a particle reservoir attached to it, this equation right here, there's a tendency to, as you turn up the magnetic field, actually suck in more particles. Okay, and it'll be sucking in more particles of the right spin, basically because you had that energy differential, not differential, but here, the Zeeman splitting, okay, said that it's eventually going to get very energetic and favorable to, to have the up spins around. So that's what, that's what this is representing. So that as I turn up the magnetic field, it'll actually be pretty energetic and favorable to be taking in um, more particles. Magnetic particles like magnetic fields. If you've ever played with iron filings, you know that. Right? I know you've played with iron filings. Yes, and magnets, okay. Magnetic particles like magnetic. And uh, the last example is a lead-acid battery. So lead-acid batteries, these are common. These are what's in your car. Okay, you have lead-acid batteries in your car. And basically, these have uh, a lead electrode and a lead oxide electrode, the lead oxide being PVO2, which is lead rust. And you put uh, sulfuric acid inside. Okay, so that's the wet stuff in between the electrodes, sulfuric acid. And sulfuric acid uh, partially dissociates. Okay, there'll be a certain concentration. Some of the H2SO4 will stay intact. There'll be a certain concentration that ionizes. Uh, you learned this, this in chemistry. Okay, that's what acids are about. They give you some free protons, and H plus is a free proton, plus some uh, negative ions left over. Okay, since there's two hydrogens per SO4, if I pop off the hydrogens, they become 
free protons, then there must be two electrons that stuck to the SO4. So the SO4 will be minus minus with 2H plus running around for every one of those SO4 minus minuses. And what will happen is that this terminal over here with the lead ends up being uh, the negative terminal. The uh, lead oxide is the positive terminal. And that's because chemically what tends to go on here is that the SO4 minus minus is like to run over to that side. And the H plus is like to run over to the lead oxide. And that's because of these chemical reactions. So the negative electrode, at the negative electrode here, you have SO4s running over, combining with the lead to produce PbSO4, okay, lead sulfate, <coughs> plus two extra electrons. And those two extra electrons, where do they go? If you're discharging, they flow out and give you current. Here, you have to have something similar to have happened on the right hand, I'm sorry, on the left hand side on the positive electrode. What happened over there is you had the lead rust, PbO2. It'll combine with some of the free protons in the acid, okay, plus an H2SO4, plus those two electrons that went around the circuit will come back on this side, combine all together, give you PbSO4 as well, plus a couple of water molecules. Okay, that's all a bunch of chemistry, okay, but what's, what's going on here is that you have an electric current that flows outside, inside it's carried by these ions, it's carried by the free protons, the H pluses, and the SO4 double minuses, so it's an ionic current inside going across when you start discharging your battery. If I took, if I took the battery out of the circuit, okay, but I, I have this tendency for SO4 double minuses to run to the right, and H plus is to run to the left, they'll do that for a while, but then it'll build up. Okay, it'll build up charges and it'll quit flowing. Okay. And that's actually the, the voltage you measure across your battery. Excuse me. One of the one of the ways to, to think about the net voltage across the battery is to think about this as two different systems. Because basically I have one set of chemistry happening at, at the lead oxide terminal, at the positive terminal, and a different set of chemistry happening at the negative terminal. There's different chemical reactions going on there. And so one thing you can define is what's the electrical potential difference between the acid and the two terminals. So here, for example, the, chemi the chemical potential difference over here for the protons, okay, which would be on this side, we care about those guys because the protons are running towards the lead oxide. The difference there, the potential difference there, uh, we can define as delta mu of the H pluses, okay, to hop out of that, which would be charge times the voltage difference. So that's the chemical potential difference there. Here, the electrode, sorry, the negative electrode, the chemical potential difference there between the acid and the electrode okay, delta mu of SO4 minus minus, would be minus 2Q delta V. The 2 there, right? Here's your example, because you're asking before, I forgot it was actually going to come up at the end of the notes. Here's your example of what happens when you're only, when you are constrained with two particles at a time. You're asking about four particles before. So this is two particles. Since here, I put in two electrons every time. The total charge on that is 2Q. That's the voltage that gives me the chemical potential difference of the SO4 double minus uh, trying to, to hook onto that. And 
chemists tell us this, okay, <laughs> that if the negative electrode, the potential difference is 0.4 volts. At the positive uh, electrode, the potential difference between the acid and the electrode is 1.6 volts. So altogether, that's going to give you 2 volts across the terminal, okay? So how is your car battery 12 volts? Thank you very much. Okay, you take six cells together and you'll make make a 12 volt uh, car battery. By the way, if you expose this to the air, the water will evaporate and your battery will stop working. Always buy sealed batteries. When I first got a car, I was commuting in Los Angeles a long way in a car with an unsealed battery. Not know it was an unsealed battery. I just drove it because it came with a car. And then my car wouldn't start. That's kind of odd. I'm just kind of checking things and whatnot. Turns out all the water had evaporated from my unsealed battery because it was Los Angeles and it's practically a desert. So, anyway, got to be better to seal, get sealed batteries. Yeah? When you turn on your lights, you know, why do you know, why does it die out? Yeah. Well, what'll happen is that you, you'll, um, you'll run the cycle, you know, it's got a finite number of molecules in it, right? So basically, it has to do with how many, um, how many hydrogen sulfate. Sorry, yeah, how many, how many little molecules of the sulfuric acid are running around? Okay. That gives you, like, if, you know, if you go look at your um, ratings of batteries or whatever, it'll tell you how many amps you can put out total or that sort of thing. Or maybe it'll give you a volt amp, right? The volt amp would be total power it can give you. It's going to be directly related to the number of hydrogen. Oh, sorry, of uh, sulfuric acid molecules you have in there. Because that's how many times you can run the, the reaction and then you have to recharge it. So the reason your battery in your car doesn't continually die is because after you've cranked it, right, you use it, use the battery to start the engine, then once you're running the engine, the gasoline actually goes to the alternator, okay, and sorry, the gasoline is not going to be alternated. Sorry. The engine runs the alternator, right, and then the alternator actually puts a higher voltage back on your car battery and recharges it. So it runs the, the uh, chemical reactions in the opposite direction. So you actually, at the end of the day, you're not actually net using power from your car battery. You use, you borrow some to start the car. When the car is going, you charge it back up with the engine. So you, you can actually test this. The way you just like put a voltmeter across your battery when the car's off, it should be 12 volts. When the car's on, it'll be 13 or 12, 14 because the alternator is running it backwards and charging it up. So when it's when it dies out, then you use some of that to go Yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Right? Actually, I had to chart, I had to, to jump a friend's car the other day, right? Okay. So you'll get more voltage across the alternator if you rev the engine. That's how to jump somebody else's car sooner. Okay. And that's the summary for today. So, see you Wednesday. Oh, right. Don't forget we're changing office hours, right? This is the new set of office hours for this week. So, no Tuesday office hours, Wednesday, Thursday office hours, homework through Friday. Better be there in Marcus.